and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 3rd through Saturday the 5th feature guest conductor Edward Gardner and violinist Christian Tetzloff. The program includes the prelude to Act Three of Die Meistersinger, The Mastersingers by Wagner, Violin Concerto No. 2 by Bela Bartok, and after intermission, Vaughn Williams' Symphony No. 5. And here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Bartok Violin Concerto No. 2, a work lasting about 36 minutes. This used to be known as the Bartok Violin Concerto. In August 1936, when Zoltan Sekele asked Bartok to compose a violin concerto for him, he had no idea that Bartok had already written one nearly 30 years before. When Bartok died in 1945, seven years after Sekele gave the premiere of this concerto, the earlier score was still unknown. And so the latter work took its place in the final tally of Bartok's output as his only violin concerto. But in 1956, the manuscript of Bartok's early violin concerto, written for his first great love, violinist Steffi Geyer, surfaced, shedding new light on Bartok's personal life and revising the catalog of his works in the process. Three decades and a lifetime of writing music and working with musicians separate Bartok's two violin concertos. In 1907, when Bartok composed the first one, he was 26 and full of promise. He hadn't yet written any of the music for which he is famous today. In 1937, when he began his second, he was at the peak of his considerable powers. He had composed two important piano concertos, brilliant works for the stage, including the opera Bluebeard's Castle, and the pantomime The Miraculous Mandarin, and a series of string quartets that redefined the form. And when Sekele proposed the idea of a new concerto, Bartok was putting the finishing touches on another pioneering score, the music for strings, percussion, and celesta. The musical climate had changed radically in those 30 years as well. Bartok's first violin concerto predates Schoenberg's first fully atonal music and Stravinsky's breakthrough with the Rite of Spring. By the mid-1930s, while Bartok was writing his new violin concerto, Schoenberg was single-mindedly devoted to his newly created 12-tone system, and Stravinsky was enjoying the stylistic games of his neoclassical phase. He began his Beethovenian Symphony in C in honor of the Chicago Symphony's 50th anniversary. And in the meantime, the entire career of Alban Berg, who gave the 20th century only a handful of its greatest masterworks, had come and gone. Less than a month after Sekele first suggested the idea of a violin concerto, Bartok asked his publisher to send him some recent examples. He wanted to see firsthand how the landscape had changed since his earlier work and, in a sense, judge what was still left to be said in the form before he committed to the project. Universal Editions mailed him violin concertos by Berg, Weil, and Szymanowski. It was another year before he started work on the piece, scribbling two themes on the back of a page of his nearly finished Sonata for Two Pianos and Percussion sometime in August 1937. When Sekele visited him at the end of September, Bartok had already written out the first two pages of the violin part, and the two played through them together, Sekele discovering his new concerto on the spot, Bartok suggesting the orchestral music at the piano. 
the concerto wasn't finished for another year, and in March 1939, Zaccheli and Bartok got together again, this time in Paris, for several days of rehearsing and in the process revising the score. This is when Bartok added the two quick upbeat notes to the broad singing main theme. Zaccheli and Bartok had known each other since the early 20s. They frequently played chamber music together, and in 1928, Bartok dedicated his second violin rhapsody to his friend. In 1935, Zaccheli founded the Hungarian String Quartet, which performed Bartok's quartets with rare understanding and passion. Although Bartok didn't play the violin himself, he was a formidable pianist, he wrote magnificent, challenging, yet idiomatic music for the instrument. In his string quartet cycle, he showed that the violin was a perfect vehicle for his great flights of invention. With the new violin concerto, he gave the instrument one of its greatest and most demanding solo roles. Bartok's original plan was to write a big one-movement set of variations, but Zagelli wanted a bona fide three-movement concerto like the great classics. Each got his wish. Zagelli, his three movements, Bartok, his variations as the second of the three. In addition, the third movement is essentially a variation on the material of the first. The concerto is one of the first works to demonstrate the clarity and directness of Bartok's late style, starting with the opening, a strong folk-like melody over plain, shifting chords. The first movement is a grand rhapsody, with its expansive, evolving theme and elastic tempo Bartok adjusts the speed every few measures. It sounds almost improvisatory. Of course, it is all meticulously worked out, including the written-down cadenza, which begins just before the orchestra drops out, with the soloist playing pitch-bending quarter notes. In the central Andante Tranquillo, Bartok writes the most formal set of variations of his career. The theme is simplicity itself, a haunted tune accompanied by low strings, harp, and timpani. In the six variations that follow, the theme is elaborated, growing not just more florid, but also more aggressive and discordant, and then stripped to its essence before taking off again into new flights of fancy. The finale, which begins like a bold dance, takes many of its ideas from the first movement, but continuously reinvents them. Originally, Bartok had the solo part drop out 26 measures before the end of the piece, but Zichelli wanted it to finish like a concerto, not like a symphony, and so Bartok rewrote the conclusion so that everyone plays together to the last measure. Program notes by Philip Husher on the Bartok Violin Concerto No. 2. And now on to Vaughn Williams' Symphony No. 5, a work lasting about 42 minutes. Very early in the 20th century, Ray Vaughn Williams began to attract attention as a composer of tuneful songs, but he eventually declared himself a symphonist. And over the next few years, the time of La Mer, Pierrot Lunaire and the Rite of Spring, that tendency alone branded him as old-fashioned. His first significant large-scale work, the Fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis, composed in 1910, is indebted to the music of his 16th-century predecessor and to the great English tradition. His entire upbringing was steeped in tradition. He was related both to the pottery Wedgwoods and Charles Darwin. Quote, 
The Bible says that God made the world in six days, his mother told him. Great Uncle Charles thinks it took longer, but we need not worry about it, for it is equally wonderful either way. He became a serious student of English folk song and edited the English hymnal. In 1908, at the age of 35, Vaughan Williams took some time off from composing to study with Ravel, gaining as a result immeasurably in his understanding of color and sonority, yet always maintaining, even sharpening, his own personal style. Years later, Ravel would call him the only one of my pupils who does not write my music. In fact, Vaughan Williams was one of the first composers in the 20th century who managed to forge a strong personal style almost exclusively from the materials of the past. My advice to young composers, he wrote, is to learn your own language first. Find out your own traditions. Discover what you want to do. By 1934, following the deaths of Elgar, Holst, and Delius, all within a few months of each other, Vaughan Williams came to represent the end of the line, at least for English music. He continued to compose in his signature style, with its firm reliance on tonality and its fondness for conventional forms. In a career that lasted more than 50 years, from the Talus Fantasy to the last of his nine symphonies in 1957, Vaughan Williams's language remained remarkably stable, impervious to the continual winds of a revolution. Despite his conviction that the composer must not shut himself up and think about art, he must live with his fellows and make his art an expression of the whole life of the community, Vaughan Williams eventually became something of a lone figure in modern music, a preserver of tradition who managed to brilliantly transcend the limited genre of the staunch conservative. Vaughan Williams' nine symphonies, which span nearly 50 years of his career, form an unusual and distinctive expansion of the great 19th century tradition. The first, a C symphony, premiered in 1910, just five weeks after the Talus Fantasy, sets words by Walt Whitman and is more cantata than symphony. It was followed four years later by a London symphony, his first purely orchestral symphony, a kind of tone poem in four parts devoted to the composer's adopted hometown. It was originally begun as a symphonic poem. Vaughan Williams' third essay in the form, The Pastoral Symphony, begun in 1916 when he was in France with the Royal Army Medical Corps, is haunted not by the genial landscape of Beethoven's pastoral, but by the battle-scarred fields of wartime France. The finale, crowned by the sound of the soprano voice singing wordlessly from offstage, finds hope and peace. Vaughan Williams completed his pastoral in 1921. It was a full decade before he began a new symphony, the Symphony No. 4, composed in the early 1930s, and it was so unexpectedly fierce and aggressive, so uncharacteristically confrontational, that it was quickly interpreted as a bleak statement about the state of the world. Vaughan Williams's friends even tried to persuade him to title it Europe, 1935, after the year of its premiere. But the composer said in defense, I wrote it not as a definite picture of anything external, but simply because it occurred to me like this. It was Ursula von Williams, the composer's wife, who saw what no one else seemed to notice, how closely it reflected von Williams' own 
character, the towering furies of which he was capable, his fire, pride, and strength are all revealed, and so are his imagination and lyricism. Although Vaughan Williams would write five more symphonies, it was his next, the Symphony No. 5, that stands at the summit of his achievement. It has sometimes been viewed as a rebuttal to the defiant Fourth Symphony, but it is really an outgrowth and a refinement of that career-altering work, and it sums up much of what he had accomplished to date as a symphonic composer. It also does represent a shifting of gears, because for the first time, Vaughan Williams channeled his dream of writing an opera based on the Pilgrim's progress into purely orchestral music. Vaughan Williams had been fixated on the idea of writing a musical setting of John Bunyan's late 17th century religious novel from the beginning of his career. He began an opera, or morality, as he preferred to call it, on the Bunyan allegory at least as early as 1906 and worked on it in fits and starts throughout the 1920s and early 1930s. But by the late 30s, he was apparently convinced that despite his obsession with the subject and the large amount of music he had already written, the work would never be finished. Sometime in 1938, when Vaughan Williams began his Fifth Symphony, he decided to use substantial sections from the unfinished Pilgrim's Progress in the process, transforming music that otherwise might have gone to waste into prime symphonic material. The symphony begins with a pair of horns in D major entering over a low C, a haunting and ambiguous opening that suggests from the start that the beauty of Vaughan Williams' symphony will be in its struggle. For a while, the music switches continually between C and D and between major and minor. Vaughan Williams quotes For All the Saints, one of the four original hymns he contributed to the English hymnal in 1906. We are now in E major. The movement continues in its shifting, unpredictable course, leading eventually to what appears to be an ending in bright G major, but finally ending as uncertainly as it began. In the last bars, the violas and cellos play C and D together. The second movement, scherzo, alternates between quiet anxiety and rich, lush melody. Here, as in the first movement, the harmonies are often modal, recalling the old English music Vaughan Williams loved, and also lending another layer of ambiguity to the symphony as it switches in and out of harmonic focus. When the symphony was first performed, Vaughan Williams openly admitted its substantial debt to the unfinished Pilgrim's Progress, but he insisted that the slow movement, a broad and lyrical romanza, provided the only dramatic connection to the Bunyan allegory. He even wrote a passage taken from Bunyan into his manuscript at the top of the romanza. Upon this place stood a cross, and a little below a sepulchre. Then he said, He hath given me rest by his sorrow, and life by his death. The inscription was not included in the printed score. In the opera, those words are given to the same poignant melody the English horn plays to launch this movement. As in the Fourth Symphony by Brahms, another lover of music from earlier times, Vaughan Williams' finale is designed like a Baroque passacaglia, a series of variations over a repeated bass. This is music of surpassing certainty and resolution, 
The supremacy of D major is indisputable, and the shadows of the old modal harmonies have been banished. The D major horn music from the first page of the symphony returns unchallenged. Vaughan Williams quotes another hymn tune, All Creatures of Our God and King. The final pages bring relief, serenity, and peace. Footnotes. Vaughan Williams dedicated the symphony without permission and with the sincerest flattery to Jean Sibelius, whose great example is worthy of imitation. In the published score, that was simplified to dedicated without permission to Jean Sibelius. Sibelius heard the work for the first time in November 1946 when it was performed in Helsinki. Vaughan Williams eventually returned to work on the Pilgrim's Progress and completed the score in 1949, more than four decades after his first sketches. The premiere was given at Covent Garden in London, April 26, 1951. And finally, Vaughan Williams' first name is pronounced Rafe. According to wife Ursula, any other pronunciation used to drive him mad. Program notes by Philip Usher on Vaughan Williams' Symphony No. 5. My name is Richard Caparella. Thank you for listening. <laughs> ¶¶